Thank you, President Celeste. I, uh, when I was campaigning, I asked if I could spend some time with uh, Dick Celeste and just sit down and talk about being governor and some of the things that you need to think about as a candidate, uh, one of which was how to select a lieutenant governor. Uh, the, the advice he gave me, actually, I followed. And uh, it was some of the best advice, not only about selecting a lieutenant governor, but just other things about, about thinking about how you, um, how you approach the office from a candidate's perspective and ultimately how you govern. Uh, it is really an honor to be in a state where you're the president of a college and to know of your long history of great service. And so we very much appreciate having this college, this institution here, but also having you in the leadership position in the helm. Thank you, Dick Celeste. This was uh, billed as a State of the State address. Um, I gave that a few weeks ago. It's 52 minutes long with applause, so we could shorten it up if there's no applause. And <laughs> actually, what I decided to do is not give a State of the State. I'm going to actually take my coat off. Um, what I really decided to do here was uh, just talk a little bit about governing and about government and about representative government. And, and I'll address challenges that we have here in Colorado from my perspective, but I'm also going to leave time for questions and make sure we get to a Q&A period because I think that's often the most interesting thing is to find out what's on your mind. But because I'm on a college campus, and I know there's a lot of people here uh, that it, if you're students, uh, you delayed coming to school looking out, but I also know there are certainly people here who are students, and there's a lot of them you know, around, and, and I want to speak to you, but I want everybody to sort of pay attention to this. Um, whatever you say about the United States of America, it is a representative democracy. And it is really important for all of us as citizens of this country and of this state to understand our role as citizens in a representative democracy. Uh, President Celeste mentioned that my wife and I lived in Zambia for a few years. He said it was actually three years, from um, 87 to 90. My wife was in the Peace Corps in Tunisia in the early 1980s. We've traveled as well to other parts of the world, and I had the advantage of recently traveling to Iraq and Afghanistan. So whether short periods or long periods of time, I've seen other governments work and been in other places, some that called themselves a democracy and weren't really a democracy, others that were in fact democracies and, and some that weren't anything resembling a democracy. And so it's important, I think, from that perspective to know that this is a very special place, the United States of America. But it's special if we live up to our role as citizens to be participatory. Now, we're in a presidential election year, and I think there are many, you know, you always hear in elections, especially from candidates running for election, this is the most important election, right? And it's usually somebody who's running for office that says that. Well, I'm telling you, as a person not running for office this year, I think this is a watershed year for the United States of America in terms of this election and the issues that we face as a country. And I think that's true whether you're a Republican or an unaffiliated or a Democrat, that you as a citizen must pay attention this year. You must pay attention and you must find a way to participate. And I would say beyond that, you have really a duty to find ways to pull other people in. And here's why I say that. Because I feel, as the governor of this state, and as a person who's watched the conversation in this state, in this country, over the last several years. I was a political science student at CSU, and I graduated 30 years ago 
but I've watched over my lifetime the conversation, the political conversation in this country evolve somewhat. And, and I would say that we're at a place where there's a lot of people that have become cynical about representative government. And we have some things that demonstrate that cynicism. If you think about term limits, like them or don't like them, in part it's a, it's a cynicism about people who are in office, might stay too long in office, the power of incumbency, those kinds of things. And, and quite frankly, I was term limited out of uh, the DA's office, and if I hadn't been term limited, I don't know that I'd be standing here today as the governor of this great state. But the fact of the matter is, it is this indication of some cynicism. And, and don't get me wrong, there's some kernels of truth that really cynicism can be wrapped around. And I've got really great friends who have unfortunately become cynics. I have one friend who says, Bill, no matter how cynical I am, I can't keep up. You know, I mean, he thinks of life that way, right? But it, so it's true that there is, there is reasons for people to look and view, view government and the operation of government with skepticism. But as people get cynical or be skeptical, sometimes they back out, not just sometimes, oftentimes they back out of participatory government. And what results is a greater influence by special interests. And again, it's not to disparage special interests is something that are inherently evil. They have a role to play. They have a role to play in, in being a voice for the people, their constituency. But the fact of the matter is sometimes those special interests can gain a greater foothold as people back out of participating in government. And as special interests gain a greater foothold, those who have backed out become increasingly cynical. And so it's kind of the spiraling effect of more cynicism. At the same time, you have more influence by special interests, which can breed more cynicism. And what we need to do in this country is say, this is a representative form of democracy. But at the bottom of that, the operative word there is it's a democracy. And that we need to think about how we participate and how we get others to do so. And anybody who's a citizen of this country or the state and looks at you and says, I don't vote. I don't vote. I think no, it doesn't matter who's in charge. It just doesn't matter. Well, I just think they're wrong about that. And I think we have a lot of examples around the world, in this country, and in the state about where it actually does matter and it does make a difference. And again, I really don't care what your party affiliation is. I want you to participate because I think it helps us fight off this sort of cynical notion about where we are as a state or where we are as a country. If you think about the other part of the conversation, and that's just about government and government spending, there's again some cynicism. And it's not, uh, it's not unlike what I said before, that that cynicism can be bred by kernels of truth. And maybe some of you think it's bred by great truths. But we have things that we, we have that operate in our Constitution as restrictions on spending that in part were, were the people of the state saying, we really don't trust representative government to do that. And I'm going to talk when we get to some specific challenges about how those restrictions operate as challenges. I actually think there are some virtues to Tabor. But I think, think some of those restrictions in Tabor, along with other constitutional restrictions, have really caused us to not be able to have a vision for how we go forward in this state and to really fulfill that vision. But, but again, it only happens if people trust and have a trust in the operation of government. I said in my State of the State address, I said, I believe today, as much as I did a year ago, that, that hope triumphs over cynicism. Now, i got to tell you, I wasn't the first person to talk about those two concepts juxtaposed to one another. I read it in a book called God's Politics, and the author is called a liberal theologian, or a liberal evangelical. The author says, listen, 
the battle in this country is not between the fundamentalists and the secularists. It's between people who hope and people who are cynical. And, and I really believe that that's the case and that what we need to do in government is to inspire trust and that in part by inspiring trust, you can get to the position where you get people to be hopeful about how we come out, about where we evolve to as a country and, and, and really as a state. We, we're doing all these things that really focus on proactively moving the state in a positive direction. Do we do it without naysayers? No, not at all. It's part of, uh, part of a democracy and also part of this freedom of speech that people enjoy. And, and there's not always accountability back to your credits or your critics. We know that. But Teddy Roosevelt said, you know, it doesn't belong to the critics. It's not the critics who count. It's the people who are in the ring, who are in the fight, who are mired with mud and blood and sweat. Those are the people who count. But what we need to do is ensure that we're participating in the decisions about who's in the ring and also that we do what we can to inspire them to think big and to hope and to decide how we want to move forward. That's how we have to think about government. And the more we back out of participating, the more we allow the cynics to reign, the more we allow our friends and our neighbors to say, doesn't matter who's in office, I'm not voting or I'm not participating or I'm not going to a community meeting or I don't care about you know, this bond or that issue. The more we do that, the more difficult it is to really inspire hope in people and inspire it broadly. And I think that's partly this conversation that we're going to have this year in this presidential election. We had it during our campaign. We called it the Colorado Promise. And we, and we, we specifically tagged that. And actually, I thought of that before I ever hired a political consultant of that term. We tagged it, Colorado Promise, because we thought we're at a place in a state where we should be forward-looking. And we need to think not just about tomorrow or the next year, not just about sort of what September of 2008 looks like or September of 2009 if we you know, do this or that in the education system. We need to think about what's going to happen in this state in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years. And, and we have specific challenges that we need everybody to be participating in. I was on my way in here and I met a woman who um, was probably older than me, I suspect, and, and she said, well, I'm... I'm still active. And I looked at her and I said, we need you to still be active. We need you at every age and everybody, you know, to, to really think about what their role is in this democracy that we have. So let's just talk about some of the challenges before we go into a discussion, a question and answer time. We have a real challenge in this country to decide how we're going to go forward in producing energy and how we're going to consume energy. And this isn't a challenge that we'll, we'll, we'll look at and say, well, it's going to change a lot in the next three months. This is not one of those immediate gratification challenges. We put a climate action plan in place in Colorado that looks to certain reductions, goals for reductions in emissions in 2050. Now, I was born in 56. If I'm around in 2050, somebody's going to be wiping drool off of my chin with a dish rag, I expect. I mean, that's kind of what it'll be for me. So why am I setting goals for 2050? Because it matters to my kids and my grandkids what kind of a world they live in. Because I sat with a group of governors, Republicans and Democrats alike, and we had science, scientists, climatologists coming in and talking to us about climate change. And in this group of governors, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and moderates, we asked the questions about climate change, and there wasn't any disagreement with the science. 
among this group of Western governors that, that there was climate change happening and that there were things about it that were human-caused and that we really need to address it and address it with action and plans that go forward and that we need to set goals. And we set a goal for 2020. It's a 20% reduction in emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and a goal for 2050 that's an 80% reduction. We know those are ambitious, but also we believe they're imperative. And, and it is really important for us to think that way in governing. And, and it's difficult, right? Because we're not going to get to those goals in an election cycle. When and if I run again for election in, in 2010, I won't be able to say we've reached our 2020 goal. But if we just set our sights so short that it was about the next election cycle, then we would, we would all be politicians and never statesmen. You know, I mean, if you think about the next generation, you have a far better hope of being a statesman than you do a politician. If you're thinking about generationally and not thinking about it election to election to election. Now I've got a bunch of political consultants that will yell at me as soon as I get back to Denver that I said that. But it's true. It really is true that we should be thinking about the next generation and the one after that and the one after that. And so we did. We put together this climate action plan. As, as President Celeste said, we made big movements on renewable energy because we really believe that renewable energy should be part of how we change our thinking and how we consume energy in this state. And it's a pretty funny thing, right? This is the great business I'm in. I had a lot of critics when we talked about renewable energy that said he is overselling renewable energy. This state cannot get to a place where we change how we produce wind and solar power and renewable energy through it. Well, now we had a pretty good year. In fact, we had a very good year. We put so much wind power up on the eastern plains that 250,000 homes can be powered just by the wind out there. We, we are building one of the largest solar plants in the country down in the San Luis Valley. We're doing all sorts of things to manufacture the, the, the equipment necessary to produce renewable energy. Wind blades in Windsor and an AVA solar plant that's thin film photovoltaic. All of those kinds of things we're doing. And now what the critics say is, that was low-hanging fruit. They're the same critics, right? He said it's, he's overselling it, now they say it's low-hanging fruit. The really important part here is what Teddy Roosevelt said. It's not the critic that counts. It's that you keep your focus on doing the right thing for the generations to come and that you have a vision for what to do about that. And so around this energy issue, we need to be in a different place in 20 years in how we consume energy, how we produce energy. I read this really heartening column by Thomas Friedman, the New York uh, Times columnist, and he talked about, you know, we are the people we've been waiting for. And, and it was all about young kids being involved in producing different and manufacturing different kinds of things. Young scientists, some of them still in school at MIT and other schools like that. I mean, doing work right now to look at how we produce a different vehicle that operates differently, that's a lighter load, that has a different carbon footprint. All of that is a part of them as, a, as the generation that, that is, you know, looking at how their lives will be changed if we don't change or alter our behavior, saying they're waiting for us. We're waiting for us, and so let's go with it. And that's, that's a heartening thing to think about. But, but energy is certainly a challenge. Healthcare is a really significant challenge. And, and it's a challenge state by state by state, but it's a national challenge. And so in this society we live in with this federalism as a form of government, right, where you have a national government and they have all these state governments, it's kind of difficult to say, how do we move forward? People in this state, in this, in this state of Colorado, we have 780,000 people who are without health insurance. Now, some of them by choice. Some of them could afford it and decide not to have it. 
But that's a remarkable number of people. It's over 17% of our population. It's way over what the national average is in terms of a percentage of the population. And we're looking at all sorts of issues about how we go forward. And, and fundamentally, the system's broken. And, and we can't, we believe, go to the people of this state and say, pay more for a system that we believe, number one, is broken, and secondly, costs too much. So we've got to do a whole host of things on trying to fix the system prior to figuring out how we pay for changes in the system. But it should be intolerable to us in America to have 40 million people nationally who are uninsured, 40 million plus, or 17% of our population here in this state in Colorado. And, and it's a deal where there is shared blame for sure. But, but just in thinking about that as a challenge, um, the cynics would say government can't fix it. Government absolutely has a role in being a part of this because of the kind of health care we provide for people who are on Medicare, people who are developmentally disabled, people who are in Medicaid. We, we absolutely have a role, and we have a convener role, and at the end of the day, we may have a, a very serious funding role. Again, that's a national conversation in this debate that's going on at the presidential level, and it inspires us to be involved. No matter how you think of that, you should understand that this is a crisis issue for the United States of America, and we should listen to the candidates and ask what they're talking about at the national level and at the state level. We're trying to do all we can to look for efficiencies, to look for effective ways to change the system, to reduce spending, but to pull vulnerable populations out of the ranks of the uninsured into the insured. And it really is how we think about it. And, and again, if a person is just a cynic and wants to sit outside and just really kind of fire salvos at people in government who are looking at health care or fire salvos at people in the health care system and not be a part of the solution, uh, you don't really help us. We need solutions. We need ingenuity to fix a problem as complicated as health care, but we need people to participate in it to do it. Transportation. Uh, as President Celeste said again, we just had a really wonderful meeting on transportation because we were celebrating the opening of Cosmics. That, that project came in way ahead of time, almost a year ahead of time, and, and the, the, the group that did it had a limited amount of money, and they were told, you know, tell us what you can do with that. They were able to do all that they promised they could do with that money, and they did it in less than a year. That's a great success. That's a great success. But in this state, we have a really serious issue around transportation funding. We asked a group of people uh, to be a Blue Ribbon Commission. And I, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that when he was the governor of Ohio, President Celeste had a Blue Ribbon Commission on transportation. I think you might get impeached if you didn't have one as a governor, because everybody does. And it's the right thing to do, right? Because it's a real, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that is always going to be a funding issue. And the infrastructure that you build out lasts for a long time, but it has a real relationship to quality of life. If you think about coming from a dirt road to a three-lane highway and, and the difference it can make in just the amount of time you travel, the, the wear and tear in your car, and just, just the quality of your life, I mean, it has this relationship. But transportation planning also has a relationship to climate change, to land use planning, and to really economic development as well. And so in this state, we have to think about transportation planning. So what happened? Why are we in a place where we have to think about new funding streams? Well for a couple of reasons, because states have relied upon the Federal Highway User Trust Fund for a long time, for the last 50 years, and that fund is going into a deficit position next year. But in this state, we used to fund highways as well with a fuel tax. And every few years, the legislature would look at the fuel tax, and they would up the amount of money that was paid into the coffers on every dollar that you paid, or every gallon of gas, 
And then they said, you know, okay, it's going to cost more because of inflation, because of the needs that we have with the growing population. So let's up it. And, and in 1991, we upped it to 22 cents a gallon. And then we passed Tabor. And Tabor said, if you're going to pass any kind of a tax, you have to go to the people of the state, and they have to vote on whether or not to tax themselves. And there has been no change in the fuel tax since 1991. There's been no change. So we are paying for our highways with state coffers that are still paying with it very much with 1991 fuel tax dollars in 2008. And this Transportation Commission came back and they said, if we want a 21st century system, we need to look at you know, how we get there. And one level is $2 billion, another is $1.5 billion, another is $1 billion, and the last level is a half a billion, $500 million. And really, the first three would all require a vote of the people. The last one, you might do something in the legislature, but we were really doing what we can to have that conversation around the state and build consensus. The fact of the matter is, if we want a 21st century transportation system that's an integrated system that makes maximum use of transit in the state, we're probably going to have to do something different to fund it than we're currently doing. And, and the question is, how do we do that? How do we make the argument? Well, I think in very many respects we have to say, okay, to the cynics, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want a 21st century transportation system? Do you want us to think about a transportation system that looks at land use planning and understands there's this linkage? Do you want us to look at a 21st century transportation system and ask the question of the role of transit? And the role of transit not just in major metropolitan areas like Colorado Springs or Denver, but in other places around the state where you can make a real difference in terms of congestion on the highways by using transit? What do you do? And, and that's really the conversations we're in. But I, but I make my point that we won't get there if, if, if we don't, at the end of the day, go back to the cynics and say, listen, let's have a conversation about how we responsibly spend tax dollars and about how we go about making sure that there's transparency in what we do and that there's quality in what we do. The government isn't some big deep hole or black hole that you just pour money into, that there certainly are ways for us to think about being responsible, being transparent, but knowing that if we want the 21st century in Colorado to really look like it should for this state to be a state we can be proud of, that we focus on how we fund and really invest in issues like health care or transportation. The final thing I'll talk about is education. Because out of all the things we do, and this is why I think it's fitting to be on a college campus on a Friday afternoon and the last event of the day for me to be here and be able to talk to you about education. We really believe that this is the most important issue that we face as a state and that we face as a country. And I've got some ways of talking about it. Um, I, I want to share with you some statistics. My generation, I'm 51 years old, my generation, 50 to 65-year-olds, kind of the baby boomers, our, our generation had about 37% of the people in our generation with a college degree, 37%. Number one in the world at the time. There was no other country that had that proportion of people in that generation with a college degree. Unfortunately, two generations later, kind of the 25 to 35-year-olds, the degree, the, the proportion has dropped off. It's down to 35%. We're only one of two industrialized countries in the world who has lost ground on the proportion of people who have higher education degrees over two generations. A bunch of others have far surpassed us. Japan has over 50% 
of, of the people in the generation, 25 to 35, over 50% of them have higher education degrees. Korea, South Korea, over 50%. Ireland, in my generation, started at 15%. Remember, we're at 37%. They started at 15. They're now with us at 37%, and we're at 35. I mean, Scandinavian countries went past us. Most of Western Europe is either equal with us or past us. Only Germany and the United States lost ground. And that's a worry for us because you kids that are out there, you're not going to be competing with New Mexico or Wyoming or Georgia for jobs in another 20, 25 years. You're going to be competing globally. We have to be thinking about that. And I mean, we have all sorts of ways that we're looking at how we do systemic reform in this state. And again, as part of, uh, as being a governor, you get to be part of the National Governors Association. Our theme last year was Innovation America. How do we be innovators? How do we use the creative power of the United States of America to ensure that we compete globally? And always when we talked about innovation and creativity, it came back to education. It always came back to education. And we have to think about the need for systemic reform. We, in the last state of the state, in the very first one I gave, we set out some very ambitious goals because one out of four kids in Colorado drop out of high school after they enter. The achievement gap is significant across all school districts between Caucasian kids and kids from communities of color. So we said we're going to cut the dropout rate in half. We're going to cut the achievement gap in half, but not by bringing Caucasian kids down, by inspiring them to do better, but kids from communities of color as well. We're going to do all sorts of things that we believe are appropriate in terms of systemic reform to get us to that place. And we believe if we do that, we can also double the number of certificates and degrees in institutions of higher learning after you get out of high school. And so we really have to think about this as, as something that is an imperative, that we can't wait to move on education reform. And we've got a bunch of things moving through the legislature this year. I'm happy to say many of them in a very bipartisan way because Republicans and Democrats alike are looking at this and say it is imperative for us. But as I, as I talk to groups of people, you have to understand that the reforms that we're proposing are fairly bold. And there'll be some lag time before they'll be implemented. But we're not looking to do more in the way of seat time or kids in an Algebra II course when Algebra II could mean a lot of different things around the state. We're really focusing on learning and focusing on whether or not kids are gaining proficiencies as they move through the educational life. And, and that really is something different. Not, others, not many other states have looked at this this way and have said, we'll find ways to measure accountability against it. We're not going to junk the CSAPs and the accountability measures, but we are going to focus on a student's capability to learn, the proficiencies they get, and we're going to link our efforts in K through 12 with what's going on in colleges and community colleges and research universities, because that hasn't been done adequate, adequately either. And, and that'll be something that educator, educators in public and private systems in the higher education and in K through 12 will participate in. And we're really happy about the kinds of feedback we've had from the education community that it is important for us to focus on proficiencies in learning. We have to solve this issue. I really believe that we can do a lot of other things. We can become the capital for renewable energy. We could figure out the healthcare issue in this state and do it and do it well. We could fund transportation going forward so we have a 21st century system. If we fail, really if we fail at systemic reform of our education system, if we fail to find a way for our kids to learn and stay in school 
and be proficient and come out of high school or a community college or a four-year research university, come out and be capable of entering the workforce. If we fail to do that, we really fail to do so at our peril. We will cease to be competing the way we currently compete in this world. And that is something that will, I think, be a terrible legacy for us. And it's why we have to, again, think about this in the context of hope. Because you can talk about the education system and, and find problems with it and, again, fire salvos over the bow of the education boat. What we need are suggestions about how we move forward and productive and positive suggestions. And we need all the people who think about education to come back to us and say, I think this will work, or, or I'd like to give you an idea, or I'd like to work with your P20 council, work with your jobs cabinet. But we need to be hopeful about this. We need to be ambitious about this. We need to get to those goals that we've established and get beyond that because as a state, we have great charm and great possibility. As a country, we have so much to be hopeful for, but it will take action, real action on our part to move forward. So I, again, appreciate the opportunity to be here, to just be able to make some remarks. And, and what I'd ask you at the end of the day to take away from this is to think about all those times when you want to be cynical about things and just ask, is there an opposite way to view it that can be productive? Not that you quit questioning, but that can be productive in how we move forward as a state. Thank you very much again for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. first and then right in back of you. Well, first of all, I will say that our climate action plan is, is very aggressive. We're the first state in a climate action plan to look at how you use agricultural lands for carbon offsets. And so there's no other state that's done that or tried that before in their climate action plan. We would view that as a fairly aggressive thing. There is this group of Western states. They had had a conversation for a number of years prior to my being elected um, about uh, forming a climate group. And I forget the exact name of the group, but it's um, now six states, I think, and it's, uh, it's Oregon, Washington, California, um, New Mexico, and Utah. I think of the states that are involved. Maybe I'm missing one, but um, Arizona. And, and those states formed this group. And what they are doing in that group is looking at designing what's called a cap-and-trade system. So trading carbon offsets, basically. Cap and carbon emissions, and if you want to go over your cap, you have to be able to buy a carbon credit from somewhere else. It's a cap-and-trade system. It's regional. They formed that in February of 2006. I'd just been governor for a month. 
were very intrigued by that, but I wasn't ready to sign on because I hadn't been a part of the conversations that led up to it. Now we've been an observer there, and quite frankly, I have some concerns about a regional cap-and-trade system, but we're still deciding whether or not to join. We were there, we're at every meeting, we are watching what goes on, and we may well uh, go forward. But, but we thought it was more important, instead of focusing on that, which is, which is studying the design of a regional cap-and-trade system, just to get our own climate action plan underway. I, I said when I was governor that I'd put a policy advisor in my shop who was a climate advisor, climate change advisor. I did that. She's a, a wonderful person, Heidi Van Genderen. And, and in all of our discussions, we thought the most important thing was to get this climate action plan in place, get our goals out there, a 20% reduction by 2020, 80% by 2050. We're working with the auto industry to talk about fuel emissions and doing sort of a rulemaking process right now, or I guess more of an investigation process with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So this is a dynamic place to be, for sure. Not Colorado, but, I mean, in the United States of America on the issue of climate change. There's a lot going on. We feel like we're very aggressive about what we're doing. Yes. I think his, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I think his push is for all judges uh, prospectively to be term limited. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it's just a court of appeals or Supreme Court justices to be term limited. He had a prior um, initiative that was retroactive, would pick up judges uh, retroactively, and that failed. And so now I think he's looking at prospective. Listen, I'm opposed to term limits for judges. And, and part of it is just what I've finished talking about that relates to sort of, you know, the cynicism that can be bred by ta people talking about the individual case or, you know, the, the judge's decision in one thing. Judges are professionals. They're, they're from, you know, the legal profession in Colorado. They have to be for those judges. District court, appellate court, Supreme Court justice have to be lawyers for a certain amount of time. And then they start judging. And I was the prosecutor in Denver for, <clears throat> well, I was on the deputy day, chief deputy, but for almost 12 years I was the district attorney. And, and I watch judges. You don't come in and know what you, you know, all the things you need to know to judge the first year. You, you gain knowledge the first year, and you basically have to work pretty hard, and you can make a lot of right calls. Sometimes you might not make uh, the right call, but the fact of the matter is, over time, you gain an institutional knowledge. And really, you gain, you gain a sense about justice, about, you know, community standards and community norms, and they impact how you feel when you sentence offenders or how you, you know, make decisions that are involved in civil justice or domestic cases. And, and I really do oppose our term limiting those people because it, I think it is, um, it is really depreciating the kinds of value you bring over time in developing that institutional knowledge. Second thing I would say is there are rural areas in the state that uh, have a great deal of difficulty where finding lawyers to become judges. In part, we, we don't pay judges as much as other people in the legal profession can make. And the other part of it is just there are places where not a lot of judges practice. I've, the, uh, a nominating commission can send me three names to a point. I've had a lot of times in this last year where the nominating commission only sent me two names, either because it was only two applicants or they just didn't consider anybody else qualified. And that says something, right, about the need, the, the, the care that we should take with this process. So, that's a long answer to saying I uh, disagree with John Andrews. 
I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Well, I think, um, yeah, the, the question was, uh, and it's, uh, I won't get it exactly right, I'll try and paraphrase it, but that our state constitution is a mess. And it's a mess in part because of the different kinds of, uh, of restrictions that have been put in place. And I think uh, three that I'll mention are TABOR, uh, Amendment 23 that requires a minimum of funding in the state education fund that funds K through 12, and then a thing called the Gallagher Amendment that is about protecting residential property tax and foisting the burden off on business property tax. And all three of those working together actually do create some difficulty in establishing what we would call a budget vision and being able to do the things that are necessary. And it's not that restrictions are, are inherently bad. It's just that especially those three working together can create a great deal of difficulty for us to be able to budget certain things. When we got to a place of a deep recession in this state in 2001, really because of Tabor, um, we were we kept K through 12 spending at a level and had to increase it when we were in a, de in a recession position. And so we had to go in and take that money from other places. And you know where we took it? We took it out of higher education. We had the deepest cuts in higher education of anywhere in the country from 2001 all the way forward to 2006 because of this thing that was called the ratchet down effect. And until referendum C passed, we were in real problems in higher education funding. We're still in the straits, but that's an example of, of the things that are happening in our Constitution currently that make it difficult um, for us to, to really, I think, uh, be responsible in terms of how we spend across the board in, in, in different areas. So what do you do about it? You asked about a constitutional convention. Uh, not many states have had much success going in and trying to take apart their constitutions. And there are probably some political science professors in the room that have looked at this issue, and we just haven't seen much in the way of success. There are, two different, uh, there are two different questions that are kind of currently being talked about in the building. Actually, several different, but let's say three major ones. One um, is, I think, something that, that you may see this year. It's a recommendation that flows from this group called the Colorado Futures Panel, and it's saying, okay, going forward, let's make it so that people were more inclined. If they want to go to a vote of the people, they make a statutory change, not a constitutional change, and that that statutory change is protected for a period of time, like five or ten years, and with that, that they're more inclined to do that, but after five or ten years, the legislature can amend it. Um, not a constitutional change, which is really embedded in law forever. It's very difficult to remove something from the Constitution. And in our Constitution in Colorado, uh, it, it's about, I think, ten times as long as the federal Constitution, the United States Constitution, our state Constitution is. We have black bear hunting dealt with in the Constitution. And so, so that's one of the things is, how do we, going forward, incentivize people to do statutory changes? The, the second thing that's being talked about is whether or not if a person's going to put something in, you know, if a, a citizen wants an initiated measure and they go out and they get their signatures, that before they get to go to the ballot with that, it does go to the legislature. The legislature can't change its route to the ballot, but they do get to debate it. So it's a public debate by the legislature, and they get to attach a fiscal note to it. And those are two things that would delay its going to the ballot but in the process would make it, uh, we hope, a more informed public debate. So those are a couple of things. Then there's this, this idea <clears throat> uh, that the same group the Colorado Futures Panel have said, let's 
establish a constitutional commission. A lot of people, you know, 30, 40 people appointed by different people, and, and in looking at the Constitutional Commission, they would meet every 10 years, and they could take apart up to a third of the Constitution and submit to the voters recommended changes. And they wouldn't have to be bound by this thing called the single subject rule. Because the reason we can't take on Tabor and uh, amendment, uh, the, the Gallagher Amendment and the uh, Amendment 23, we can't take those three things on at the same time, is because we have a single subject rule that says you can only refer to the voters a single thing in each, in each initiated measure. You could put all three on the ballot, but the people who are looking at this wouldn't trust each other enough, right? The Gallagher people, the ones that want to see that go away, would think, well, the Amendment 23 people aren't going to work very hard at seeing their go theirs go away. You can only really get there if you can get all three of them, and so you have to suspend the single subject rule. That's one way to do it, the, the Constitutional Commission. The Speaker of the House, Andrew Romanoff, has an idea just to go to the public and say, let us suspend the single subject rule for one time, one year, and go in and look at spending restrictions in the Constitution. I think those are all uh, positive ideas. Those are all things that are being talked about. Uh, we don't want to make it too complicated for the, for the voters, and so we're asking questions about sort of the best way to go. I don't think it'll be a constitutional convention to answer your final question. Sir, you had a question there. I should go up back. And not looking upstairs at all. There's very significant concerns. I just talked to the Colorado Water Congress yesterday, um, and, and I think the concerns have to do with uh, a lot of different issues. Uh, we are on the end of a drought, and we hope we're on the end of a drought. It looks like we might be. Uh, but, but we've had seven years of drought in the state of Colorado. Um, as well, we have uh, continued growth. We're about, we're going to reach five million people sometime in this, in this uh, year. Projected to go to seven million in another 20, 25 years. That kind of growth, uh, we need to really solve water issues in order to sustain that. And if you add to that the prospect of climate change, it becomes a really sort of scary story. I did talk to a climatologist at this Western Governors meeting when I talked about us being on this panel of governors, and I said, well, we're really concerned about climate change in Colorado because our ski industry is, is important. It's not just the amount of precipitation, it's the form of it. We need snow to do what we do in that in ski industry, and tourism is our second biggest industry. He said, well, if there's any comfort, Colorado will be sort of the last state whose ski industry will be hit, California. The, the ski industry would go away there before it would go away in Colorado. Not a great deal of comfort, right? Um, <laughs> but that's kind of how climatologists think. Um, and, and, and so this water issue is a really big issue. What, what we're doing with the Water Congress is, is saying, first of all, we need to focus on what we can do right now. First, that's conservation. And, and we've met with mayors and groups of mayors, you know, from north to south, there are things in, and I met with Mayor Rivera and talked about water and water issues for Colorado Springs, but, but we're very, I think, pleased that the mayors of this state get water as a scarce resource and understand that they have a responsibility in governing to look at how we go about conservation. The second part of it is really to focus on reuse, and, and Aurora is a great example. They let about 50% of the water they have a right to, they put back into the basin. They're building a big reuse project that treats that water and recycles it back through Aurora. And so that can really uh, take down the amount of future need you have if you do reuse at that level. 
Shared use is another thing that has become more popular recently where municipalities say, well, let's talk to a group of, of landowners who are all farmers. And when their land's laying follow, is there a way for us to be able to rely upon some part of the water that they have a right to? And so it remains in agriculture, but it can be leased back to municipalities in sort of the shared use arrangement. Those are three ways to think about it. When we think about it that way, we actually do better as it relates to water. But we still understand that it, it's a scarcity and there's a lot of different issues that, that are a part of it. We are looking at how we move forward, what place storage can play in our going forward. We, we failed referendum A in the state. No county in the state um, voted up on referendum A, which was the grand water storage uh, scheme that really was about trying to bond to build uh, water storage, but we weren't specific, I think, in what we're going to do about it. I do think water storage has to play some role in it. Um, and, and so that's what we're doing. There's active planning. We just hired a new water engineer. We hired a new person who, who's the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. And in the state, we have this roundtable process in place that really has basins talking to each other about their needs, about their usage, and about how they share concerns, but how they may also share shortages. So all of that's going on. Your premise is exactly right. For us to grow to 7,000 people, uh, we absolutely need water. I'll just say one final thing. There's a big conversation, and there is ongoing, about oil shale. And uh, you know, people are saying, well, how are you going to produce oil shale, and are you going to go forward? We have enough oil in the oil shale in this country, in this state, actually, in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming, but most of it's in Colorado. The, the oil in the, in the shale is more than all of the reserves in Saudi Arabia. So significant reserves is just a very difficult oil to get to. And right now, the kinds of technologies they're looking at are very water consumptive. And we probably can't go forward with technologies that are that water consumptive. We have to figure out how to reuse that water. If it becomes you know, a technology that's usable and not too impactful on the environment, we could play a real role in energy security and, and do some very good things, but we can't do it unless we figure out issues around water and water scarcity. Yes. Comment about their endorsement? No. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you why. Um, we are the host state for the Democratic Convention. Um, Denver is, gets to host the Democratic National Convention. We haven't done this for 100 years. It was 1908 was the last time we had a convention here. Um, and, and so it's great on the 100th anniversary of that first convention. It's actually the only convention, the only place in the country where there's been a convention in the last 100 years outside of California that's in the West, and, and we get to host it. Um, and so I've stayed very neutral here as it relates to uh, the Democratic candidate. I mean, I'm a Democrat, and I'll at the end of the day endorse a Democrat um, for very good reason. I mean, I have, um, I have some quarrels that I would brook with uh, the Republican side and, and really I, what I would call governance issues. And I very much am aligned or akin to sort of what's being talked about on the Democratic side. Having said that, I've not taken any position as it relates to the Democrats. I have offered to endorse Republicans, but so far they have turned me down. <laughs> I haven't. That's just a joke. Um, it, I, I don't mean to make light of the question. I mean, I, I really do think this is such an important year. And I do think that there are some differences that are being um, exposed uh, from the candidates, and, and some very positive differences, and some, you know, that, that, that point out some, some negatives. But uh, the fact of the matter is that 
we're in a difficult place in this country. I went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think, I think this war is a very complex issue, and then we're going to have to have really bright-thinking people who will help us solve this dilemma. When I was in Iraq, the people of Iraq, and I'm the deputy prime minister of Iraq, as well as the soldiers there, said, take back to America this message that things are getting better, that the levels of violence are being reduced, that, that the Iraqis are cooperating at a different level, that the Sunnis are no longer looking at al-Qaeda as sort of this salvation for them, that the sectarian violence is reducing. But it's still a very dangerous place. We still spend over $2 billion a week. I went to the funeral of a soldier killed uh, in Iraq, who's a Colorado, and here in Fort Carson just a week and a half ago. Those are all still costs that we as a country are paying. And, and, and we really need to understand the costs that we pay, but the complexities of the war, the, 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 the significant costs that I think would be occasioned by a very immediate withdrawal. We need a leader. We need a leader in a very big way. We went to Afghanistan. I got to meet with the president of Afghanistan, who looked at me and said, go back to America and say, listen, if for nothing else you need to be here because the infant mortality range, uh, the infant mortality rate has changed so dramatically in the time that American forces have been here and been in control. Now, the fact of the matter is in Afghanistan, we've lost ground. We had control of that country, but the Taliban is very much exerting control back in the south. The poppy that was grown in the south of Afghanistan is enough to supply 95% of the world's heroin market. But the president of, of Afghanistan saying infant mortality. Why? Because when the Taliban was in control, they were really urging girls under the age of 18 to get married. They would not let girls work. They would not let them go to school. Their place was in the home and married, and there were 14 and 15-year-olds who were getting married, and they weren't old enough to carry babies, and the infant mortality rate was really high because they were losing children in birth. And by 50,000, that number has changed. And it is. It's an interesting way to view it. It's not the only way to view it. But it's an interesting way to view it. Again, Afghanistan and Iraq, where we have troops deployed, they're really interesting, and not interesting, they're very complicated situations. And so when you think about this issue, and I mean, it, it may be that we're, we're drawn to personalities or that we're you know, drawn to sort of this sort of soundbite kinds of things that happen in debates. Don't be. Study this and ask the question, who is the person that can provide the kind of leadership we need to take us out of this very complicated situation? Uh, let's do one more. And I'm going to do it in the back there because, actually, I'll do two more, one and one. So let's go with you first, sir. Uh, we have uh, funding available because of the money that's going into the state education fund. Um, we stabilized the mill levy last year. It's a longer and more complicated thing. It actually fits into this issue about things happening in the Constitution. Some of them were also statutory, but, but the local share was really dwindling that local government was putting in to, uh, to schools, to K through 12. The state share was really growing, and that was really a problem for state government because as the state share grew, that means we had things we couldn't do in other parts of state government. And, and so we stabilized it and said the state share 
has to, has to remain stable. The, the local share cannot get any lower. And in doing that, actually, in stabilizing it, there is money available in the state education fund to do a couple of things that, that do cost money. Some of the stuff, the reform we're looking at, we're not looking at, at, at reforms that cost great money if you're looking at proficiencies and alignment and those kinds of things. Many of those are systemic. We are putting, we are taking at-risk kids who are on a waiting list to go into a state-sponsored preschool program. We're going to eliminate that waiting list. You say, why would you do that? Why would, why would you have a state program for at-risk kids in preschool? And the answer is because it works. We have had it for, we've had it for a couple of decades, and kids who are at risk who go to preschool when they're three and four and get ready to learn in kindergarten actually graduate at a rate higher than the statewide rate. They graduate at almost three times the rate for at-risk kids who don't go into the preschool programs. So we're focusing on preschool, full-day K, and not everybody has, it's not a mandatory full-day K, but there are a lot of school districts that want full-day K. They don't have funding for it, and we have a way to provide the funding. We also are putting together a counselor core for Colorado kids. We have one of the lowest ratios of counselors to kids, and, and there are targeted schools where kids aren't thinking about what they do when they graduate, and as a result of that, they don't have much of an incentive to graduate. And we're really putting counselors in those places because we believe, and I think, again, the research will show that you can make a difference by having counselors involved in planning for a kid that they begin to think about their post-high school years and that that keeps them in school. Those aren't the only things. There are three ways of doing it, but we actually have the money because of the stabilization of the mill levy that we did last year. And then this is the last question. Sir. Yeah, um, actually, it doesn't come out of P20. It's already something that we're really trying to focus on, and we do think adult literacy has a great relationship to closing the achievement gap, to keeping kids in school, and, and looking at how we do that and how we pay for that. So much of that is the province of local school districts, but we have, I would say, a very robust conversation about that. The second thing is online learning, and I know not every home has a computer or Internet access, but there's a lot that you can do online to promote literacy, to promote adult literacy, uh, but, but also really in schools that are in places where, you know, we look at poor performing students and know that if we can get their parents in, if we can get them invested in their kids' education and also get them to a place where they understand they can improve their own sort of educational status, it will make a difference. Um, like I said, my wife and I lived for three years in Zambia, and there's a, a World Health Organization study that said if you want to improve, where we lived, 35% of the kids under five were either malnourished or seriously undernourished. There's a study that said if you want to improve the nutritional status of kids who are undernourished or malnourished, then you have to educate their mothers. That education was the most important thing to do to attack now, uh, nutrition issues, not handing out food, not, you know, making sure that everybody had baby powder or milk powder. It was, in fact, about educating their mothers. Same thing is true in this country. We understand it. We understand the relationship. And so um, we, it did not emerge from the P20 Council, but we do understand that promoting adult literacy and really promoting it in the very schools where kids are going to school is a, is a way to attack educational levels. So thanks for the question. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here.